0: Let's jump over to our topic for the day. Ciara, you shared this, and I think, Cassidy, you mentioned you put it in the newsletter. From Tumblr Girl to Engineer, How a Platform Inspired a Generation of Women to Code. So, Cassidy, high-level, quick synopsis of the article, and then maybe, yes, Ciara lead us in. Like, What made you think of dropping this link in there and wanting to talk about it?
1: In this article, the high-level thing is that... Platforms like Tumblr, like MySpace, like Neopets even, all of these platforms from (laughs) way back in the day, in the early 2000s. I'm only
0: laughing because we've mentioned these three so many times because they are clearly famous. Yeah, so
1: prominent. But honestly, they made coding very accessible. Because it was all about like making your blog look cooler, making your guilds look cooler, making your page look cooler. And they had tutorials very easily accessible so you could take it and then update the HTML and CSS and kind of take it and run with it. And I know so many people, including myself, who got a lot of knowledge and experience just from being able to play around with these platforms and then suddenly said, wait, this could be a career and take it and run with it.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my wonderful co-hosts, Matt, Cassidy, and Ciora. What's going on? Hi. Hello. So let's start off as we often do with a little bit of news. We've talked many times on this podcast about open source and the way modern day programmers rely on things like NPM to just kind of grab projects or, you know, files or folders out of a library, pop it into their project where it's useful, makes things go faster. They don't have to reinvent the wheel, but also a bit dangerous when you're using something that you didn't build and actually turns out has a security vulnerability. So GitHub code scanning now finds more security vulnerabilities here. The onus is kind of falling on the GitHub's and the NPM's of the world to do more security for folks. Just want to get people's thoughts. Obviously, This is a good thing. I mean, scanning your code is probably something they do anyway. Do we trust them to step up and take care of the ecosystem where it's failing? I
2: remember a a little while ago, GitHub came out with a feature that basically like would almost like code for you, if that makes sense. Copilot. Yeah, copilot. Exactly. The way that copilot works is that obviously like some machine learning is involved and they basically like scan A bunch of code that's hosted on the github and i remember after the initial excitement like died down a lot of people like had a problem with the fact that github was basically using people's code to like build this thing and i could see maybe people having the same complaint about github or whoever where did
0: you learn this like is it by right exactly exactly
2: even though i do think it could be extremely helpful, especially like I've admitted several times on the podcast before, the last thing I think about when I'm building something is security. <laughs> I'm trying to get something up and running quickly and I want it to be done. I don't really think about like, oh, this is perfect and totally secure. So something that would like, before I make something live or something that would like ping me like, hey, this has a huge security vulnerability would be like super useful for me, but I could- say, Crud app
0: now, security scan right. later. Right.
2: So- I could see how it could be super helpful, but I also understand how people could have some issues with it, I guess I could say. Same. I don't really want to have to care that
1: much. Like, I will do base level, my version of security and gate and building up <laughs> those gates around certain things, but I'm not a
0: security professional. App is Cassidy compliant. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, if a company can do stuff like that for me, I don't mind. And I do think that because these companies are hosting it, it is kind of on them to do it because as much as developers, yes, we should care about this sort of thing, there's bad actors out there who want to push bad code and that kind of stuff. And so the hosts that are dealing with all of these libraries and vulnerabilities and stuff, they should screen for that in some way or another so that way people aren't accidentally giving away data they don't want to give away or something like that.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. One of the things that I haven't mentioned on the podcast before is that when I was trying to figure out what section of development I wanted to get into, I was considering going down the security route because I think I watched a James Bond movie (laughs) and I saw Q and I was like, that dude is cool. (laughs) I want to do that. And so I went and did this whole research and figuring out kind of like how to get into penetration testing and all that kind of thing. The security people... It blows my mind how much you need to know to get into yeah. that field. It is so dense. There's so much depth that you have to know, but also breadth of knowledge about everything. It's incredible. So yeah. when it comes to tools like this that like help you bridge that security gap, I don't think a front-end developer or a back-end developer they should probably be aware of the issues, but like to know about the industry, that's where the dedicated professionals comes in and tools like this, I think would be really useful. Right. It's kind
1: of like what we talked about on the episode where we interviewed Juliana, who is the CTO of Stitch. But right.
0: security as a service. Yeah, security yeah. as a service.
1: Yeah, yeah. Where it's the kind of thing where there are professionals who have all of this experience. Let's use them and not reinvent the wheel right. with our own patchy version of security.
0: Yeah, I mean to Matt's point, we were doing an interview recently with the folks from SkillSoft and they were saying that the average number of certifications for the security folks is like above 5, whereas for everybody else it was like one or two. They take that stuff way more seriously. They want to like be on top of and be validated as having the most, you know, sort of like up-to-date knowledge because that kind of stuff for them is changing so rapidly and is like just critical. You know, like maybe I lag in a little bit behind on my cloud whatever certifications, but it's not going to mean the difference between a job or not, but for the security crowd, certifications as Matt said, kind of like depth of knowledge is key.
2: And I think it's not just like the depth of knowledge, but all of that knowledge is super, super important. And when you're building open source projects, like a lot of times, especially for security stuff, you don't have the time to dedicate to like making sure you're following all the best practices because it's so in depth and it could be like detrimental to you if you don't know some of the like red flags or whatever. So I'm, going to be kind of enthusiastic about this. I think this is a great feature. <laughs> I definitely think it's a great move on GitHub's part to like implement a feature like this to help people.
0: During beta testing, the code scanning feature scanned 12,000 repositories 1.4 million times, found 20,000 security issues, remote code executions, SQL injection, cross-site scripting flaws, some of the, big, the usual stuff. The one thing is it may just stress you out. It's important to note that while we continue to improve and test our machine learning models, this new experimental analysis can have a higher false positive rate. Oh well, so it goes. All right, moving on to our second news hit of the day. Google creates $100 million fund for skills training program. $100 million sounds like a lot, but it's almost kind of table stakes for big tech these days. But yeah, throwing this out here, what do we like or not like about this? You know, in general, I think seeing money go into education feels good. Seeing money go into education that is sort of siloed to one platform feels less good, but curious to get people's takes.
2: I'll be the resident grumpy person on this (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of big tech companies have started initiatives like this we just talked to the folks at AWS and they have something very similar where they like get people who have come from non-technical backgrounds and get them like ramped up on AWS so that they can have like IT jobs that are fairly well paid my thing is that I always think about like I think from the outside looking in, these things seem like a good idea. Like, yeah, they're gonna help people who are come from low income communities like not be low income anymore, which is great. To me though, sometimes it feels like the band-aid over the gunshot wound, you know? Google and other big companies have notoriously like not been so great with diversity and treating like non white male employees well. So to me, I'm always thinking about like, okay, this is great, but like long term, what are you doing to help the people that are already at Google? That's kind of like how I <laughs> I look at it. And then like, also like you're saying, like I tend to be very skeptical about like these educational initiatives that are for, not for profit, but like not 100% free just because there's always like a catch. Not always, but a lot of times there's like some sort of there's catch that is. There's often a catch. <laughs> yeah, that, that can be very negative for the candidates. Like I've seen so many people who come from boot camps who are like, I'm paying so much money for a program that i that wasn't very useful to me. So I just think about those things a lot, not to be super negative, but they do go through my mind when I see stuff like this.
3: I had a look at what the requirements were for because they're they're working with three different nonprofit groups in in this particular case. So Europe, which focuses on upward mobility programs for the disadvantaged Merit America, which is an organization that offers tech training programs for adults without a bachelor's degree and social finance, which designs student-friendly financing and repayment plans. And the the way that it's structured is a lot of the organizations will only get paid once, or they'll, they'll get their sponsorship from Google once those students have landed jobs. And the students pay $100 a month for a maximum of five years. So that would be 12 times, what, about five grand, I think, for an education there. It's better than a lot of the very predatory boot camps that are around, because some of those can be super yeah. bad. I'm not sure what, how that's structured in terms of how it differentiates from other boot camps, but to me, that seems fairly reasonable. Oh, and they'll also, you'll only start to repay your training if you find a job that earns at least $40,000 a year as well. So if you don't find a job, you don't pay for the program by the looks of it.
0: Matt, you had mentioned that when I dropped this link, it reminded you of a program you did really feel was valuable. You want to shout that one out?
3: Yeah, for sure. I had a chat too. When I was looking for roles, actually, this was one of the ones that that I applied for because I thought it looked really cool. So what they do is an organization called Tech2. They're operating in the US and the UK. And one of the issues they had with the criminal justice system is when people are incarcerated and they go through their programs, they're not rehabilitated and brought back into society. They're not set up for success in a way. And so what they've realized is that tech is a very high paying career, relatively speaking. And you, you don't need a degree in order to be successful in the field either. You can, if you can do the job, you can do the job, which is great. And so what, what they're doing is teaching people who are incarcerated how to program. And then it's a one year like web development, not really a boot camp because it's a whole year, but they've had incredible success rates. So they've got a 100% reduction in reoffending through similar programs in the US mm-hmm. and UK. So out of everyone who's done this program, nobody's reoffended yet. Mm. Which is incredible for me. It it makes sense doing something like this. Like they're putting people in a, the best position to succeed after they are finished. It it kind of shows that it works. Like if you help the people who are in need, then they they don't need to resort to the behaviors that they had prior to being incarcerated.
2: There's another similar organization like that that I found through Twitter, and they like also provide like mentorship to people who have been formerly incarcerated so that they can like. Is
1: it Emergent Works?
2: That's the one that I
1: know. So yeah, with Emergent Works, it's yeah, they provide mentorship and they train people. But that what they also do is they have like consulting. And so like the company itself, Emergent Works can take on client projects, and then the formerly incarcerated individuals can get that job experience while being in the program, which is really cool.
2: Very cool.
1: That's
0: rad. All right. Well, we'll include some links to take two in the show notes because that certainly seems like a admirable organization. Let's jump over to our topic for the day. Ciara, you shared this, and I think Cassidy, you mentioned you put it in the newsletter. From Tumblr girl to engineer, how a platform inspired a generation of women to code. So Cassidy, high level, quick synopsis of the article, and then maybe, yes, yeah, Ciara lead us in. Like, What made you think of dropping this link in there and wanting to talk about it?
1: In this article, the high level thing is that Platforms like Tumblr, like MySpace, like Neopets even, all of these platforms from <laughs> way back in the day, in the early 2000s. I'm only laughing
0: because we've mentioned these three so many times because yeah. they are clearly fan yeah, 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 so
1: prominent. But honestly, they made coding very accessible because it was all about like making your blog look cooler, making your guilds look cooler, making your page look cooler. And they had tutorials very easily accessible so you could take it and then update the HTML and CSS and kind of take it and run with it. And I know so many people, including myself, who got a lot of knowledge and experience just from being able to play around with these platforms and then suddenly said, wait, this could be a career and take it and run with it. And so that's kind of the high level description of what the article touches
0: on. What this made me think of was your discussion that I missed out on the other week about Gen Z and how they don't understand file yeah, systems. Yeah. So it's like sort of every generation learns with what it enjoys, you know, at that age. So a lot of people who come on the podcast who are a little older than us. Say, oh, I loved gaming. Yeah. Uh, and then I, so I started a gaming forum, or I was, I wanted to build games because I'd run out of games. And then for a certain generation, it's oh, I loved blogging or social media tools, you know, and then like that's what got me into it. And then I was thinking about Gen Z and how they don't understand file systems. It's like. If you've only ever used a smartphone or a tablet, then you've never had to look at a file or think about a folder ever. Right. And then maybe you get to college and you're like, I want to try CS101, see what this is about. And it's all like files and folders and directories, And you're like, I don't know what any of this means. Like, this is not you know, I've been using a computer since I was five, but I've never had to think about any of this. So it's just interesting to think about, yeah, what the gateway is.
1: And yet they're able to do like Apple shortcuts super well because that's yeah. kind of like, quote unquote <laughs> code and, and customize your phone. Yeah,
0: they have their own hacks. They have their own system. Totally.
1: I found
2: this article really interesting because I'm like fascinated with the idea of how tech changes as the generations progress, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So like we've talked about before how like so many people got into tech through I started doing stuff with Neopets or MySpace and I always wondered what was like after MySpace and obviously it was Tumblr because in the article it features experiences from like women who are around like mid-twenties age so like still millennials but like the younger millennials. And I just thought it was so cool. And I've always wondered, like, what is the thing like for Gen Z that is like going to be the gateway to coding for so many people? I still haven't really found it yet. One thing I have discovered, though, which isn't necessarily coding, but it's like tech adjacent, I guess I could say, is that there are a lot of Gen Z who are like really, really good at Photoshop and video editing. I don't know if you've been if you've stumbled across like people who do like Fan art for like anime or whatever, or people who do edits on like TikTok and YouTube, they are so high quality. It's like, I always think to myself, you all could like make up like the media department of any company like existing right now. I've thought
0: about that many times. I'm so glad you said that because it's kind of like, yeah, certain things will guide you down a path. And if you mess around with the HTML, CSS to be a programmer, Certain things, you know, used to be considered nerdy or almost as technical as that, like being in the AV club yeah. and knowing how to edit film. But now just growing up and wanting to be on social media or Tumblr, you become an expert video or music or photo editor and you're using all of these software skills to do it. So, yeah, like you're saying... So it's almost like you put in that ten thousand hours, you know, to get to mastery while you're a teenager without thinking about it. Right,
2: exactly. It. And then all of a sudden, it you turn eighteen, and it's
0: just like intuitive to you. Exactly.
2: I always want to comment under TikToks like, you know, you could get a job with the skill. Like, I want to like, <laughs> like say that to them because like they really do have the skills. Like, they're using Photoshop, they're using like all these different apps and things like that. And another thing that I felt interesting was like I used to use Tumblr a ton when I was like. 13, 14, 15. And it's interesting you mentioned, Ben, about like the whole uh, file system thing. When I was mid-teens, I didn't have a computer. So I never got to fiddle around with like the HTML side of things on on Tumblr. Like to customize your blog, you I guess you had to have a computer because I just had to, got to use like the default settings on Tumblr because I didn't have a laptop to like do the the editing with. So it's so true when you only interact with like the internet through apps. And like through phones and like tablets, it totally changes the way you think about coding and tech.
1: Access just really matters where like you talking about the video editing and photo editing and stuff at my middle school, the school, the computers had Photoshop. I would stay after school just to be able to play with Photoshop. And to this day, I still kind of have decent Photoshop skills purely because I thought it was the coolest thing that my school had Photoshop and I played with it all the time. And You see, like, again, on TikTok and stuff, I saw this one kid that was playing around with editing music and stuff. And because this little kid who was maybe six had access to all of this professional video or audio editing software, they were able to make some really cool songs and beats and stuff purely because they had access to it. And and that's where I think that plays a lot into it. And I also wanted to give an honorable mention to Minecraft too. I think a oh, lot of yes. a yeah. lot of kids and young adults and, and kids who are in college today are coding in Java because they first played with, with it in Minecraft.
3: Just on Tiora's excellent point as well, around kind of like the generational shift of people, we had the the gamers with the gaming forums and we had the Tumblr crowd come through and how that's starting to influence kind of like the technology and products that we're using today. And I'm so excited to see what that crowd, like the, the video editing creative field, when they're kind of working professionals, how they start to influence the current technological landscape. There was one I saw on TikTok earlier on today, and they were using something called, like it's generational AI. They're using a GAM or something. I don't know. I messaged them. I was like, how the <laughs> hell are you doing this? Because this is so cool. And what they were doing they, was they were using images and artificial intelligence or machine learning to sync up a transition of images to music on TikTok it was absolutely mind-blowing hmm. but yeah so I'm, I'm super excited to see kind of what how that starts to influence things later on in terms of technology and how we got started we had I think the first computer I ever used was one of those you know those Macs that kind of look like the back of an alien yeah. head <laughs> they were all multicolored, yeah. and yeah. yeah that was my first foray into technology and then one of the teachers there had set up Doom in this kind of little basement layer, and there was a select few students who managed to to wheeze their way down and play video games after school. Oh, and then we had this game, this touch typing game with um, Timon and Pumbaa <laughs> from uh, from the I Lion King. I
1: remember game. that game.
3: It was like an interactive game, and it was basically stopping you from doing the two index fingers typing to actually. Touch typing, and it was the most fun yeah. I think I've Adventures ever had Adventures in typing
1: with Timon and Pumbaa. <laughs> That's the one. I found it.
0: It's so much fun. I think it was the iMac. It had like that really bulbous back. Yes. And the, like really nice pastel colors. Yeah, those things were awesome. It
3: looked like the back of a Predator, the, the Alien vs. Predator <laughs> yeah. head. Yeah. It kind of just went out.
0: They looked this,
2: so fancy, though. This is going to be yeah. like a clear indicator yeah. of generational difference, but... We had two of those computers in my classroom when I was in kindergarten, and that was the last time I saw
0: mm. one of those. <laughs> I think that
1: was sixth grade for me, which I think tracks yeah. with our ages. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, yes, Sierra, when you were saying that you didn't have like a computer for Tumblr, I was just thinking like, I didn't have, yeah, a smartphone or a tablet until I got to until I was out of college, you wow. know, like those things didn't exist for me. All right. I don't want to talk about how old I am anymore. <laughs> Let's get back to this article. <laughs> was there something specific to Tumblr or to this person's career as an engineer that we, we wanted to touch on? I think we're bringing to light like the way into which different platforms that are appealing to you as a youth can kind of lead you on this great path through software engineering but what happened with this particular person and was there something about Tumblr itself that was relevant to the article?
2: Yeah, I, I wanted to comment on this, too, because the article like comprised the experiences of several women in tech who, like I said, are like in their mid-20s now who are software engineers or front-end mm-hmm. engineers. And one of the things that I found really interesting was that the thing that like got the article off to its start was the fact that there was a TikTok where the original poster... She like mentioned how there was a, a generation of girls who were who learned how to code through Tumblr, and apparently there were comments under the TikTok they were saying like HTML and CSS isn't real coding. And one of the yeah. um, the questions that the author of like the journalist who wrote the article they had asked the people they interviewed like how do you feel about that? Like as a software engineer now, how do you feel about like people saying that HTML and CSS isn't real coding? And like several of them were like it definitely is. And they felt like it was an attempt from other people to like demean the skills that they had gathered as like young girls, because for some people in their mind, if you hear that young girls are coding, that makes it seem like it's too easy and therefore like not as, I guess, difficult and not as a. Does that make sense? So I just thought that was really interesting because I've heard this debate like several times on Twitter where it's like, is HTML or CSS really coding? And it was interesting to hear these women who are like now professionals, well-established in their careers, say like, yeah, it was. And like, that was how I got started in my career like as a software engineer today.
1: Anybody who tries to gatekeep what coding really is <laughs> grinds my gears <laughs> yes. so yeah. much. Yeah. <laughs> Let people enjoy things. Let people make things. It's so annoying to me when when people do that. It is. I, I do think you're right, Ciara. I do think it's specifically when it's people who are historically excluded and underrepresented in the field. And, and you even see that there's a really good article about what developer advocacy and developer experience means by Sarah Drasner, and I can try to find the article to put in the show notes, but she made a really good point about it where there has been kind of a shift where there's a lot more respect for the profession, but still some people are just like, oh, are you technical enough? And those kinds of questions started to pop up as it became more accessible to people who weren't just white men. And I think that's just a trend in the tech industry, unfortunately, where it's, people gatekeeping legitimate skills.
0: I mean, I definitely think that I've had that question pop into my mind, Ciara, which is like, you know, the only things that I've ever, yeah, really dabbled in are are JavaScript, HTML, and CSS. And so it is a bit like saying, I know how to play around with web pages as opposed to, you know, I could write something fully functional that's Turing complete, but increasingly i do feel like especially in the case of javascript there's just so much you can do with it i mean you could you could build wordle and you know sell it for seven figure you know like there's so much you can do with those what were you know somebody might try to put in a corner as simple tools now
2: i was going to say in the article they were talking about some of the really advanced things they did with tumblr through html and css and one of the people they interviewed she and her sister got started with a business selling like WordPress templates all starting from customizing their Tumblr page Mm -hmm. and then like interacting with APIs and coding in PHP and then eventually like got to the point where they were like had a business a full-fledged business as teenagers and that to me is like that says a lot about how much you can do with just like what to us seems like basic coding skills so.
3: I've thought about this a lot as well because you you see this debate flare up on Twitter with a thousand long threads. All the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Almost kind of like every yeah. six months, you know? Yeah. And from my perspective, I think that that whole debate comes from the fact that when you're talking about like pure HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, a lot of the kind of like OG programming concepts like algor- Dijkstra's algorithm and all that kind of stuff, like that relates more towards kind of like performance efficiency, scalability, Whereas when you're doing like HTML and CSS and JavaScript, those those concerns aren't as readily available and, and it's not object oriented as much. And so I think that's kind of where the argument stems from, but it doesn't mean it's any less complex and that that knowledge is somehow invalidated from the fact that it's just like a, a newer subset of programming that is still incredibly difficult, incredibly complex when you start building so hard. new <laughs> things. And Yeah. The internet wouldn't exist without good front-end developers, you know? Like, a lot of the things that we enjoy and use on the internet came as, as a result of people being wickedly good with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript.
1: I think there's one other level to this, too, and and you see it a lot, and that's the low-code tools or the no-code tools for creating a lot of things. And I admit there's, mm. like, a very deep part of me where I'm just like, you're not writing code. But at the same time, it's putting together logical blocks to make something, and I've seen so many businesses that have come up, kind of like what you said, Ciara, just in the past year even, of people who didn't know how to write a line of code, but they're really good with spreadsheets and in combination Mm. with like Excel and then a few other tools on top of it, they're able to make a full-on website with a sign-up flow and and with, I don't know, sales. So (laughs) you could argue the semantics of what coding is and stuff, but it's all just building things for... Better mint of you, of the world, of whatever you're trying to solve, and let people enjoy things.
0: Yeah, build how you want with software and let the product and its success be exactly for itself. all right. Well, let's each, if we can give a recommendation, I'll tell a funny little story. It's my children's winter break, midwinter break, so they're off. So I live in the Hudson Valley now, and I went to Catskill yesterday, which is a little town, and I found out that somebody there won the Powerball lottery. And I guess their dream was to open up a gaming shop. So they opened up an amazing gaming shop where people come. There's like a night for Yu-Gi-Oh, a night for magic cards, a night for this, a night for that. And they have the huge tabletop dioramas. And so I bought my kids Star Wars Legion, which is like Warhammer, but it's for little kids, not like you have to spend a million (laughs) dollars and paint them all yourself.
1: You have to win the lottery to play.
0: Yeah, you have to win the lottery to play Warhammer (laughs) or be Henry Cavalli. So shout out to Kirwin's Game Shop in Catskill and Star Wars Legion if you're interested in like a starter approach to tabletop miniature gaming. And if y'all have something you want to recommend, music, movie, programming, independent project, a tweet you liked, whatever it is.
2: Yeah, I'll recommend something. I recently, since we've been talking about video editing and like Photoshop and stuff, I recently got Procreate on my iPad. I have no idea so how to use it. Oh, love I don't Procreate. know how to use it yet, but I'm excited because I hope that I'll be able to do something kind of semi-fancy with it. We'll see what comes up within the next couple months if I decide to literally like finally sit down and watch like, you know, a 30-minute tutorial on how to use Procreate. But that's going to be my recommendation for today.
1: Procreate's so good. And I'm also going to recommend an iPad app. Speaking of video editing and image editing, LumaFusion. It's a video editor for the iPad. I I they might have an iPhone app, I'm not sure, but it is really solid. I was struggling to edit this one video on my PC and, and I was just like, "Hey, you know what? I have an iPad. Maybe I'll try out that app that those kids were talking about on TikTok." <laughs> and I was able to edit an entire video like was multiple scenes and all kinds of stuff so fast. And faster than I thought it would be, and it rendered quickly and stuff. I was completely sold immediately. It was it was really really easy to use. So that is that is my latest discovery and find.
3: Yeah, I've it's played around with video editing on the the iPads, especially the the new M1 iPads, and it's just it's kind of depressing. Being like, I spent four thousand dollars on a gaming PC, and this tablet it's better better video know, than that right? does. It's it's insane. I'm gonna shout out the general. AI artist that I mentioned earlier on the podcast. I don't have his TikTok details at the moment, but I will put those in the show notes and you can go and check out that work because I, I thought it was really, really cool. All right, everybody. I'm going to
0: shout out the winner of a Lifeboat badge, somebody who came on Stack Overflow and helped us rescue some knowledge from the dustbin of history. Awarded yesterday to Varad Mondekar, what does app colon layout do for views in a constrained layout? Hmm, well, we'll find out. Also, I'll just shout out another one. Awarded February 18th to Eugene. Shh. What is this a.out file and what makes it disappear? All right, we have the answers for you and you can find them in the show notes. I am Ben Popper. I am the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us, podcast at Stack Overflow. With questions and suggestions, and if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps.
1: I am Cassidy Williams, head of Developer Experience and Education at Remote. You can find me at cassidoo c a
2: s s i d o o on most things. I'm Ciora Ford. I am a developer advocate at ApollographQL. You can find me on Twitter. My username there is Ciorio. That's c e e o r e o underscore.
3: And I'm Matt Kiananda. I'm a technical advocate here at Stack Overflow. You can find me online on Twitter or YouTube at Matt Kanda. That's M-A-T-T-K-A-N-D-E-R.
0: Awesome. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Bye.
3: Bye. Bye.